Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. Great to see you. We are finishing our sermon series today on fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we come to an amazing story of Mary at the tomb and the resurrection. So to help me out this morning, I need you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that you know, you're excited about the new year. New opportunities are coming your way, I hope. And I want you to imagine that you get a letter in the mail from a fancy law firm from downtown Columbus. Not one of those injury attorneys that you know, checks out who got in a car accident today and uh, wants to send you a letter, but a fancy one. You know, the envelope has sort of a stamped, gilded return address on it. You open the letter up, and inside it's fancy letterhead. They know how to use the left indentation properly, you know, and there's like listed uh, people who work there. And the signature sort of looks like they used a calligraphy pen, and it's very well written. And in it it says that you and your siblings are the last family descendants of a wealthy businessman from Kansas, let's say. And he had no family, and he has passed away, and now all of his uh, wealth is left to you and your siblings. How would you react to that? I didn't say it was an email from some guy, you know, overseas, you know, like that tells you you're a prince if you just call him. I'm saying like real law firm, you know, legitimate letterhead. Come on, you'd at least call, wouldn't you? Who would call? I would call. Even if I'm skeptical, I'd be like, all right, yeah, right. I don't know anybody in Kansas, but the offer's too good to not at least look, right? In fact, you can be skeptical all the way through the process, but the offer's too good not to at least look into it. Now, that concept is the exact same concept with how it works with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can be skeptical of it. You can wonder about it. You can say, I'm not sure about this. But the offer that comes to us because of the resurrection is too good for you not to at least look. And that's why I want you to study this story with me this morning, to look at this story of Mary at the tomb and the resurrection story to see what it really means. Because inside of the resurrection, because of the resurrection, there are unbelievable promises made to those who trust in Jesus Christ. For example, there are things like the promise of a new body that will last eternally. There's the promise of a new home that we will dwell in that will have absolutely no evil in it whatsoever. There's the promise of perfect character that we will finally be transformed to be the people that we are always to be made to be. That's all bound up inside the resurrection because Jesus overcame our greatest enemy, death. So as we come to this final story, the resurrection, I want you to know that everything in Christianity comes back to this point. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? The promises are bound to it. Our willingness to submit to Jesus is bound to the resurrection. Our ability to transform in this life and the life to come is bound to the resurrection. Your ability to have unshakable faith in midst of difficult life circumstances can be found if you anchor your life in the resurrection of Jesus. 
Now, it's heartbreaking for me to see people who choose not to become Christians, to hear about people who decide not to follow Jesus. But what is even more heartbreaking for me than just hearing about people who choose not to be Christians is hearing about people who choose not to be a Christian, and their reasons are things like, well, I disagree with what Jesus teaches. Or something like, I discredit Jesus because look at his followers. Like, have you seen those TV evangelists, the way that they do and what they do? They take advantage of people. They take their money. They fly on private jets. Or you hear things like, have you seen the way that some of these Christians live? They're not very Christ-like. Now, all those things can be accurate, that there are TV evangelists that take advantage of people and take their money. There are a lot of Christians like me who don't always live like Christ. But it's heartbreaking for for me to hear people say, I'm not going to become a Christian because of those things and not actually look into, did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? Because all those other things are ancillary. They're side notes to this one point. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Now, just as heartbreaking is when people learn to practice religion reading the Bible, praying, attending a worship service, singing, communing, but live without the power of Jesus Christ. Stuck living lives of envy or bitterness, lives of anger and unforgiveness, lives of worry and fear, ingratitude, lives practicing religion but live worldly. And there's no discernible difference between non-Christians and people who call themselves Christians. That's just as heartbreaking. So what's the problem in all these things? Is it that we're not trying hard enough? No, it's not the problem. The single problem is this, that you've got to look into and stay in touch with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it's true, it changes everything. If it's not true, we should go home. It's one of those two things. So this morning, I want to ask three things or look into three things. The first one is this. This story tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ demands at least that we inspect it, that we look into it. That's the first point. Let me, look at, let me show you this. In this story, <clears throat> there are three people who look at the empty tomb. There's Mary, there's John, and there's Peter. John is the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. <clears throat> Excuse me about my voice. So you see the story starts out with Mary Magdalene walking to the tomb. It's still dark, and she looks up, and she sees the stone rolled away. And the Bible says there, John says, that she sees the stone rolled away, and she runs back to tell the disciples. Then there's the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. He and Peter take off running, and it's funny if you notice, John is the writer of this book, and he puts in there, for some weird reason, that he outran Peter. I don't know if that mattered to John, or if he was competitive that way, but he's like, the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter took off running, John outran him, you know, okay, John. But he says it, and John gets there first, and John, standing by the, the stone, stoops down and looks, but he doesn't go in. Now, John's writing this, and he uses the Greek word blepo for look, which means using your eyeballs, and you see something. But here comes Peter barreling. He's probably a big guy. In fact, John says in a couple chapters later that he carries 153 large fish out of the water, so he's probably a pretty big, strong guy. And he's bumbling along, and he's running, and he's probably out of breath, and he blows past John. 
And he goes right into the tomb, just like Peter would do, right? Peter's sort of impulsive, and he doesn't care. He's not scared. He's blowing right into the tomb. And if he finds these grave robbers, he's going to kill somebody. And he busts into the tomb, and it says that he sees the handkerchief and the linens laying on there folded on the place where Jesus was laid. Now, John uses a different word for this. He doesn't blepo the linens. He doesn't just see them. It says that he theorizes. That's the Greek word theori, which means we use the word theorize, which is to think intently, trying to make a conclusion. So here's what Peter's doing. Peter busts past John. He goes into the tomb, and Peter immediately is going, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I see linens folded. If grave robbers were going to steal Jesus, they would have kept him wrapped up so he didn't smell. Okay? If other disciples were to steal Jesus, I doubt that they would take the time to iron and fold the clothes and put them back onto the place where Jesus was laying and then leave with them. You see, Peter's reasoning, he's thinking, and this is important. Peter's doing something different. He's figuring out what's happening. He's thinking seriously. He's focusing. You see, here's why this matters. Christianity is more than just thinking. But it is not less than thinking. Christianity is not just this feeling you have. Christianity is not just, I'm a Christian when I feel good about what Jesus has done for me, but when I don't feel good, I'm not a Christian. Christianity is not just thinking, but it's not less than thinking. You see, the resurrection demands that we look intently for an explanation. Something happened about 2,000 years ago that you and I need to at least think seriously about. Because here's the reality. Whether you are a skeptic or not, whether you are a believer or not, no reasonable human being denies that Jesus of Nazareth lived 2,000 years ago. Nobody denies that. No serious human says that I don't think Jesus lived. Nobody does. No serious human denies that Jesus went about teaching like a prophet and doing marvelous things to impress people. Nobody denies that. Unbelieving people say, yeah, that happened. Nobody denies that Jesus of Nazareth hung on a Roman cross. No reasonable person, believer or not believer, would say, I don't think Jesus died on a cross. Nobody denies this. But what people disagree about is where is Jesus now? That's the point. And the bedrock of the church in the first century was witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. At one point, Jesus, there were over 500 people that he presented himself to, and the church took off in the first century because they said, hey, I saw Jesus, I promise, he's not dead anymore. Go ask so-and-so who lives in that town. They saw him too. There's three people that live on this street. Go ask them. They saw him. And over and over, eyewitnesses to this resurrection made this group of people take off into this movement. So you may be saying, okay, that's great. They actually saw Jesus. What evidence do we have of the resurrection? Well, let me give you just a few to think about, okay? The first one is this. Who the first witness is. Do you notice in John chapter 20 when uh, Trevor started reading, who is the first witness to the empty tomb? It's Mary. Now, these aren't my rules, and this isn't how I'd like it, but this is reality. In the day and age when they lived, and this was being written when Mary was there, women were not credible witnesses to be believed. In fact, if you were going to go to court, 
You couldn't call upon a witness of a woman inside of a courtroom because they chose in that day and age to not believe the testimony of a woman. Now, why does that matter? All four of the Gospels in the record of the resurrection say that a woman is the first witness to the resurrection. So when they say, hey, you should believe the resurrection, they say, go ask Mary, go ask Martha, go ask these women who saw it. Now here's how this, why this matters. If you were going to make up a story about a resurrection, if you were going to invent one, if you were trying to create a movement, a religion, a group, a faith, and you needed a resurrected Savior to do that, why would you say a woman was the first witness? That would discredit everything you were trying to lie about. So the only advantage, the only reason that you would say a woman was the first witness is simply because it was true. It offered you no advantage in that day and age. So the first witness is one piece of evidence to the resurrection. The second one is this, the changed lives. Here's something that people just simply cannot explain. How in the world... Did, people, did these people go from uneducated cowards to elite world leaders? Standing before the most powerful men in the world and not shaking in one moment and having boldness to declare what they believed. Remember what happened with Peter and the rest of them before Jesus died? They were scared to death. They were lying to little servant girls outside of the place where Jesus was put on trial. Peter was so afraid of just a servant girl knowing who he was. And then all of a sudden, about 50 days later, he's fearless. His life has changed. How do you explain, they say, the apostle Paul, who was known as Saul, who was an educated elite, who gave everything up to go become a lowly servant to Gentiles. It just doesn't make sense. Now, here's what you would have to do. When you look at the transformed lives of those first disciples, you would have to say, if you don't believe in the resurrection, that something of equal power or greater power had to happen to change their life. Do you follow me? Something had to, have to, had to change their life. And if it wasn't the resurrection, it had to be something else that, that changed their life because not one witness to the resurrection recanted their story. Not one witness changed their story. Not one witness said, you know, I was just lying about seeing him. I don't really want to die, Nero. Please don't kill me. Not one of them recanted their story. And so these changed lives, you would have to have a reason probably less believable than a resurrection to explain why their lives were changed. Let me give you the last one. My favorite. <laughs> the empty tomb. Now here's why this matters. The Jewish people had no advantage. There was no advantage to the Jewish person for Jesus to go missing, right? To steal his body, to hide it from people, to burn it, to get rid of it. There was no reason for Jewish people to do that. They wanted Jesus to be dead. They needed him to be dead, right? So they wanted him to stay in the grave. Do you remember what the leaders asked um, Pilate to do? They said, can we have some of your soldiers to guard the tomb because we think some of the disciples are going to steal his body. So they put a guarded militia in front of that tomb. The Romans had no advantage to Jesus not being there in his tomb. In fact, they needed it. They didn't want him to be Lord. Caesar was Lord. And so they put those guards in front of them. But here's the deal. When, when they started to claim resurrection of Jesus and his body went missing, 
Not one group of people brought forth the body and said, here it is. The Jews, the Romans could have squashed this movement in a moment. At the time in which Jesus was living, <clears throat> excuse me, there were a lot of messiahs that kept popping up. There were a lot of teachers that would pop up and say, I'm the Messiah. And they would gather a following of 300 or 400 people and they would die. And guess what would happen? All the followers would leave. Jesus is the only one that pops up, dies, and then the movement takes off because they could not produce the body. No one disputed the resurrection when they talked about it. They just tried to suppress it and then they couldn't. So you got to look into this witness or this evidence and decide what you think about the resurrection. The second thing that's really important that you see in this story is that the resurrection challenges our assumptions. Do you notice Mary makes a lot of assumptions when she comes to the tomb? She comes to the tomb and she assumes that his body has been taken away. She assumes certain people have taken his body. She assumes that he is dead. And in all these assumptions that Mary is making, she's making assumptions that we often make about Jesus. Let me show you the first one. That's this. She makes an assumption about the place Jesus is. Do you notice what she says? She says, they took my Lord away. Jesus wasn't in the place where Mary thought he was supposed to be. She showed up at the tomb. She was ready to care for his dead body. She saw the stone rolled away, and she said, he is not where he's supposed to be. And this bothered her. This hurt her. She was weeping over it. You see, he was actually, if you look at the story, exactly where Mary needed him to be. She just didn't recognize him. She finally goes into the tomb. She talks to the angels. She walks out. There's a man that's there, and he's speaking to her, and she thinks that he's the gardener, but it's Jesus. Not where she expected him or what, where she thought he was supposed to be, but where she needed him to be. Now, how many of us, and how often do we think Jesus is not where we need him to be, that he isn't showing up in our hardest moments, that he's bailed on us when we need him most, and that maybe possibly means that he doesn't care or he's not interested. And the reality is the resurrection of Jesus allows him to be exactly where we need him to be all the time. That's the beauty of it. But her assumption was not just where Jesus was, but her assumption also was that the power Jesus didn't have. You see, if you notice in the story, she assumes that somebody has taken Jesus away, his body. Now, first of all, that person would have had to have been powerful enough to defeat the Roman army, that militia that was there in front of the stone. Second of all, they would have had to have been strong and powerful enough to roll this about 1,000-pound stone uphill. That's how they got them down. They would be on a little bit of a gradual decline, and they could roll the stone in front of the grave. And you would need several huge people to move that stone away. She's assuming these people have all kinds of power to do this. And she shows in this interaction really the greatest fall that we have as humans. That we have so often too small a view of Jesus. You see, to Mary, when she showed up at the tomb, Jesus was a teacher. She called him rabbi. He was a godly man. He was a righteous man. But to Mary, Jesus was still all those things but dead. And Jesus blew her expectations away when he showed up and he was alive. She wasn't expecting that. So here's what I ask you to consider as you think about this story. What do you really think Jesus is capable of doing? Now, couple that with the biggest things that you're facing in your life right now. 
the things that you're most worried about, the things that you're afraid of, the things that you're most frustrated, the things in your life that you are so scared they won't change. What do you think Jesus is actually capable of doing? The resurrection demonstrates the kind of power he has when it declares that even over life and death, God has power to raise Jesus up. He has that kind of power. And Mary made these assumptions and missed for a moment who Jesus was. Let me give you the last point. It's this. The resurrection transforms our expectations. The main thing that Jesus wanted from Mary, if you look down when he finally realizes, when she finally realizes who he is, it says in verse 17, Jesus said to her, don't cling on to me, meaning like she fell at his feet, she was grabbing his legs, kind of squeezing onto him, and Jesus says, don't cling to me right now, Mary, because I haven't ascended yet. The resurrection wasn't the end of the story. Jesus didn't just come back to life to get the party going again, round two, let's hang out, guys. I know I died for a little while, sorry about that, let's restart the party. It didn't stop at the resurrection. In fact, Jesus said, I'm ascending to my Father. Go and tell the disciples, I'm going back to the Father and their Father, to my God, their God. That's really what ends up happening. Now, at first, this kind of sounds like it's bad news, right? Mary's heartbroken over losing Jesus. The disciples are heartbroken because they've lost their leader. He's resurrected back to life. This is great news. Now we have him again. Let's keep him. Don't ever die again, Jesus. We don't like that. But he's leaving. He's saying, I'm ascending back to the Father. Sounds like it's bad news, but it's not. You see, his ascension, the ascension means he's returning back from this life to the Father. The ascension of Jesus is so vital for our understanding of what Christianity is. Here's what it's about. Let me tell you the first thing. The ascension of Jesus, because he ascends back to the Father in Acts chapter 1, the ascension of Jesus means it is the completion of, of his earthly ministry what did jesus come to earth to do do you remember he says i have come to seek and to save the lost so when he returned to his father what he's saying is the mission that i came to do i've done it i've completed it i have done what it takes for the lost to be saved Jesus is saying in Hebrews chapter 12, pardon me, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that the joy that was set before him of saving us, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and now he has, Hebrews 12 says, sat down at the right hand of God. Now here's why this is important. This is a really interesting um, uh, element to the story of Jesus. When he went back to the Father, it says that he is seated at the right hand of God. His posture is really important. In fact, it, it, here's what you have to know about this. It, when you look at the story of how the tabernacle was built under Moses, and then the temple was built under David and then Solomon, uh, pardon me, under Solomon, then the second temple, one of the things that's left out that's not included is chairs. There's no chairs inside the holy place of the temple where the priests did their work. Do you know why? Because their work was never done. Priests never sat down. There was always something to be offered, always something to do. And so Jesus, after finishing his work, goes back into heaven, sits down at the right hand of God. And that's meaningful. That matters. That because the priestly work of offering sacrifices to make us right with God is all done. It's completed. Now here's why this matters to you. Because the work you and I try to do to make ourselves right with God is already done by Jesus. 
This exhaustion you feel, this emptiness that you struggle with, this distance that you never feel like you can you know, overcome, Jesus already fixed that problem. That's why Hebrews says that when we understand what Jesus has done for us, we have what he calls rest, finally, holy Sabbath, spiritual rest. We can go, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. So when you come to Jesus, what do you expect? Do you expect a list of things that you've got to do to get yourself right with him? Or do you expect the work of Jesus to provide for you the forgiveness and acceptance? When you approach Jesus now, do you expect scolding and shame or love and embrace? The ascension means that his ministry has been completed and you can expect that love. The second thing about Jesus is this. The ascension is about his coronation. Coronation means to be crowned king. And when Jesus ascended, he didn't just levitate to a higher elevation. He went upon his throne. He went upon his, he received his crown. Ephesians 1 tells us that he is far above every rule, every principality, every power in this world. That is vital for us to understand that there is no power, no authority, no dominion that is greater than Jesus Christ. How important of a message for us to realize in 2020 when we're facing elections in our country and there's so much uncertainty with powers in the world that's going on right now. Yes, I encourage you very much as an individual citizen to participate in democracy as much as your faith guides you to do that. Cast your vote, play in that, do what you got to do, but do not pin your eternal hopes upon a human being who runs for an office in this country. Don't do it. Jesus is far above every power and principality, not just in this country, but in this world. And his ascension means that he's been crowned king of kings. Okay? His ascension is also about the conversion of our future. You see, when Jesus ascended, things were different. He ascended, and he is not done, and we are not done. He is interceding for us with the Father. He's advocating for us with the Father. He said, when I go back to the Father, I'm going to send my spirit so that me and my Father can be with you and in you for always. He's now present with us at all times. Jesus is continuing to do ministry for us and interceding, advocating, and being present with us because of this. And since Jesus isn't done, we aren't done either. The resurrection story is the most powerful story of conversion you can see. Here's how he showed us. Go back and look at this story. When does Mary come to the tomb? If you look in verse 1. She came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And John tells you that on purpose. It's dark in her life, not just physically even, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. She's scared. Mary is scared. Mary's heartbroken. She's weeping and she's full of questions. You see, this man, Jesus, saved her life. And I don't just mean in some you know, intellectual, kind of mystical way. I'm saying she had demons. She probably was living a life of sin in the city. She was a wreck in her life. And Jesus shows up and he saved her life. The man that saved her was gone. And she is desperate. In fact, you see Mary willing to accept the bare minimum just to feel some level of relief. She's saying to the gardener, Give me just, can I just have his dead body? That will make me feel better just a little bit. And then the resurrected Jesus shows up and changes everything. In this one encounter that Mary has with Jesus, he takes her from just relief. Uh, can I just have his dead body so I feel better? 
to eternal hope. Mary, I'm alive and I'm going back to my father and you will never be the same. But you have to ask, when did it change for Mary? Because you may be saying, okay, I want to believe in the resurrection. I want to have the power of Christ. I want to be changed. When did it really change for Mary? Well, if you look at verse 11, that's when it changed. You notice at the beginning, she saw the tomb, and then she ran and told the disciples. And then Peter and John come, and they go into the tomb, and then they leave, and they go home. And Mary's still there, and she's crying, and she's weeping. But in verse 11, she herself finally goes into the tomb and looks. And there she meets some angels, and they say, Why are you crying, Mary? Why are you crying? She turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus yet. It's somebody else to her. And she begins asking questions, and he says, Why are you crying? What are you really seeking for? What are you looking for? And she says, I just want Jesus, but she doesn't know the kind of Jesus she needs. And then it begins to really change for her. When Jesus says to her one word, do you notice what Jesus says? Mary. That's it. He makes it personal for her. He just says, Mary. And she finally knows it's him, the resurrected Jesus. It finally became personal. So here's what you have to do. You've got to actually look in the resurrection. I'm not telling you to try to feel some spiritual, mystical thing. I'm not telling you you've got to like grind your gears harder and harder to try to... I'm saying you've got to look at the resurrection. You've got to ask yourself, do I believe that Jesus is dead or is he alive? What do you believe? And when you see the resurrection, it changes everything. But it won't change until it gets personal. That he raised back from the dead for you. For your forgiveness, for your acceptance, and for his presence to be with you for the rest of your life so that you know that you'll never be apart from him again. Death cannot separate you from God. Nothing can anymore because of the love of God. And you can have that in the resurrection. So let's stand and sing this song with Rodney. If you have a need, won't you come?